What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Planeswalkers Anonymous, the only magic podcast that you're listening to right now. And if you share our obsession with Grove of the Burn Willows, we are here for you. We won't rehabilitate you, but we will have a lot of fun. I'm Duncan. I just completed an order for over a dozen Sphinx Mindbreakers. Donovan, does that sound like a good investment? Um, I'm gonna say no, but that card does have a pretty interesting effect. It's only $8.30 right now. It's gonna go up, right? Sounds like a no. It sounds like it's not gonna go up. <laughs> well, how's it been going, Don? What'd, what'd you get up to this week? Oh, not a lot. I just uh, was prepping for pre-release as far as the store is concerned, and then, you know, did some pre-releases myself. Oh yeah? Where did you play? Played at Boardwalk Games. I played at Boardwalk too. We got some pre-releases in. How many did you play? I played two. Cool. I only got the one in, but that's, that's three pre-releases between us, so we should have some, I don't know, something interesting to say about pre-release, right? Yeah, I thought that the themes within the set mm-hmm. didn't seem super strong for sealed, but it felt like it would be a lot more powerful in draft. Yeah. It just didn't seem like in sealed you get a lot of any of the core cards for the mechanic mm-hmm. in any one sealed pool. And so you just kind of have to, I think playing good stuff generally works best in sealed. Yeah. I think that's pretty generally true too. But I, I could very much see the, how the mechanics could come together in a draft deck. And one of my sealed decks, I did play blue, red play spells on your opponent's turn. Yeah, And it's just, I also sometimes won with my Nadir Kraken instead of my other strategy. Sure. But it was, the cards were there to like do stuff, I just didn't have any of the super powerful cards for it. And what did you think of the Nadir Kraken? That card is insane and limited. Yeah? It, I think it'll be, I think I'm just going to see constructive play. It's going to be a commander staple for years. Sure. But So I, I had one, and a couple times, or once when I played it, it was amazing. But that was a game where I happened to have another effect in play where I was drawing lots of extra cards. Mm-hmm. A couple other times when I played it, it was a threat that my opponents felt they had to deal with, but they did. And it wasn't game warping at all. It just kind of drew a removal spell. Mine, if it stuck around, won the game. Yeah. And since I played my deck with the intent of keeping it around... I had a couple counter spells, and I had a couple copies of the Flash Aura that could give Hexproof Tell in a turn. Sure. It generally stuck around. Okay, cool. For anyone who isn't familiar with it, Nadir Kraken is a creature. Kraken, 2-3, for blue, blue, and 1. Whenever you draw a card, you can pay 1. If you do, put a plus 1, plus 1 counter on Nadir Kraken, and create a 1-1 blue tentacle creature token. You mentioned that you think that those themes might be stronger in draft. While I typically would prefer to play draft to sealed, this event I was playing sealed because I played two-headed giant with Iris. That's my daughter. She's eight, and she played two-headed giant with me, and we uh, we did okay. It, it went yeah. pretty well. From what I hear, you just had her carry you around the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. So we built a blue-white deck that was essentially just some flying creatures and a couple of bombs. Like, uh, what's that Sphinx that I was talking about last episode? Mindbreak Sphinx? Sphinx Mindbreaker? No, no. Dream Trawler. Dream Trawler, yeah, that one. Dream Trawler and the Nadir Kraken. Yeah. And then we had a black-red deck that was just all about escape. Because we had some just decent, not any, like, um, anything amazing. Well, actually, I was going to say not anything. We did also have the Ox, you know, the... Ox of Agonis? 
Yeah. We, so we had that one in there, but then we also just had some, you know, just some efficient, decent escape creatures. And there's some black creatures that do some self-mill effects, and so we put all of those in there also. So the black-red deck would just play its creatures and dump stuff into its graveyard so that it could escape anything that got dumped in there. Or, you know, just use those cards as fuel for escaping the other stuff. Yeah. Did you have a Kroxa? No. Ah, that would have been too bad. Yeah, but that deck also had two copies of Perforos' Intervention. (laughs) And so, like... (laughs) The black-red deck turns out, not to take any credit from Iris, she did a good job playing it, but it turned out that our black-red deck was just real good, and the blue-white deck, if it did anything, did really good stuff, and so, like, when we both got to do our thing, we did real good, but the blue-white deck wasn't very consistent, and so sometimes it just didn't do anything, and our black-red deck had to carry us, so Iris was uh, doing all the work, and she did a good job, but... You know, just in two-headed giant, if you're essentially playing one deck versus your opponent's two decks... It's gotta be real good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, we weren't quite that good. Maybe if we had that Kroxa, right? Yeah, that would have tied it all together. Yeah, then Iris could have just 1v2'd the whole tournament. (laughs) And it's like, if if I get that Dream Trawler out there, then then we got something. (laughs) Otherwise, it's just her. She did good. She did really good. I think uh, we we played Two-Headed Giants specifically because, you know, I felt like maybe her dad would need to help her. And to a certain extent, I did. But she didn't need nearly as much help as I expected her to. She did a good job. You mostly just had to be like, hey, Iris, play your card. Yeah. She's like, but I was looking around the room. Right. Yeah, and I think our, our first game, I really micromanaged her a lot more than the further games. But yeah, after that first game, I pretty much was like, yeah, okay, Iris, now don't play anything yet. Next, we're going to attack. You want to you attack? And then after we attack, like, okay, now play whatever you want to play. Yeah. Or I'd be like, wait, wait, don't play that yet. I'm going to play this first. Okay. There. But she did a really good job. I was, I was impressed with her. So I get some brags from my daughter into the cast. <laughs> she deserves it. Anything interesting happen at your uh, events? Let's see. Did I play the first one? There's another stupid blue deck. I didn't feel great about it. <laughs> but you went 3-1 both times, right? Yeah, I went 3-1 in both of them. Pro Grinder over here tearing it up. Second event I played my loss, I just felt like it was... Their deck was good, but my issue was that I didn't have the correct mana either game. Mm-hmm. Like, game one, I had too little. In game two, I had too much. Yeah, been there. And so it was just like... I think I could have beat a worse deck even as that was. And I think I could have beat this deck if I'd had the correct mana. So I I felt like my second pre-release, my deck was very, very good. And the first one, I thought my deck was fine, but not amazing. But I just had, uh, oh, I was playing blue-white because I had two blue demigods and two white demigods. Mm. Yeah, that's the other thing that my blue-white deck had going for is I had two Daxus and a copy of the blue demigod. Calife. Yeah, those those were pretty much my low-end. Yeah. And I think the demigods are very good. Yeah, that's the impression I got, too. But yeah, I, oh, the first one, I, I played blue-white, but I had all my green cards set aside with, like, a set of cards to just swap out with the blue ones in my in my deck. Oh, yeah? If um, I ran into a really low-to-the-ground aggro deck, because my blue stuff was really dirtily, but it had a lot of draw power. Like, I had a, multiple copies of Thirst for Meaning and multiple Omen of the Seas. Sure. The blue stuff was really good at finding my good white cards, and I had a couple Khalifes. Yeah. 
And then the green stuff, though, I had some more efficient creatures for it. I ran into somebody playing really aggressive, which I didn't use until the last round. But the last round, I played against a really aggressive red-green deck. And so I switched in the green stuff, and it almost got me there, but not quite. So I, I got beat up by the, the really aggressive deck. You know, I think that even if my green stuff was good, we made the right choice in our event because we got most of our rares were were red, and then we got a couple of really good ones in blue, white, and white. So yeah. I think that we didn't... I don't think playing green was something that we should have done in this event, but I would be interested to have you take a look at my green stuff that we opened up, because I think the last pre-release I went to, the Eldraine pre-release... I looked at my pool and was like, oh, my pool sucks. And then you and someone else were like, your green is bonkers. And this event, I looked at my green stuff and I was like, yeah, nothing of interest there. Maybe I'm just really bad at evaluating green. <laughs> just not used to playing green and limited and yeah. seeing what stuff is important there. Well, that's yeah, that not could be. unreasonable. You've always been a removal player in limited. Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember that's... you went to a Dark Ascension release event where they were doing triple dark ascension draft mm -hmm. and you took like every removal spell in the pool and i took every undying creature in the pool yeah and we just wrecked everybody else there and then we met in the finals and then just my undying creatures got me there but i think it's funny because like we both had busted decks <laughs> but we just went at it from completely different standpoints and so our yeah. decks were very different but also both very good. It's yeah, just the I, thing I was doing was well-matched against the thing you were doing. I have to remind myself when I'm drafting to actually take creatures. That is I'm, the, I, I'm the other way around. I like, love oh, non-creature spells. <laughs> I just love non-creature spells. Like, I, removal, yes, that's like the best kind that you can get in limited, you know? But combat tricks are about the only non-creature spell that I don't really want. <laughs> it's like, I want draw spells. Yeah, I you want can't use combat removal. tricks you don't creatures. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. But, I mean, I guess that that was my pre-release. Sorry, I kind of interrupted yours. No, I, just, I had a lot of fun, and I got some play in with some of the new mechanics and new cards. Kind of give me a feel for it. Some cards that I didn't really think looked very good on the outset, playing with them in Limited, made me go, oh, maybe I, I could see a spot for this in some constructed decks, like Metamized Prophecy. Looking at that card, I was just like, oh, that does it's not going to do anything fast enough to matter. Yeah. But I think that's because with the sagas, frequently I evaluate them as being like a turn slower than they are. Because I forget that you get that first lore counter whenever it comes in and you get the first effect now. Like, I yeah. know that if I'm talking about the cards and how they work. But when I'm just like looking at like how this works, you know, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get to scry to. And then after that, we name a card. And then after that, we might get the draw, you know? Yeah. It seems like it's going to happen so far away. But playing with it, it actually seems like a pretty reasonable card. It's like. Basically, a two-mana scry two, draw two, as of course of the game is concerned. Sure. And that's pretty powerful, so yeah, slowing so. it down to put it over slow, several turns but... makes it acceptable. Yeah. And you've identified the important parts, because since we're talking about this card specifically, it's you know, it's a blue and one for a saga. The Chapter one. Yeah, chapter one is scry two. Chapter two, choose a card name. Chapter three, when you cast a spell with the chosen name for the first time this turn, draw two cards. And chapter four, look at the top card of each player's library. Yeah, it doesn't do very much on any of the turns, and it takes four turns to get through it all, but it does do a lot there. Yeah, so I, I think the card is actually quite good. So stuff like that happened, you know? Like, that's yeah. one of the reasons I like playing pre-release, 
is it's sure. gonna get it's gonna make me play with cards that I might not play with otherwise, and mm-hmm. I get a good feel for them. Yeah. Did you uh, run across anything that got you real excited to play with stuff in constructed? No, not really. All right. Well, you want to talk about the news? Yeah. Your daily newspaper. There's a new secret lair called Year of the Rat. Yeah. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. Just because my comment about the secret lairs is I think they're cool, but they're not something Wizards should do too often. Yeah. But that's how I feel about a lot of the things Wizards does, is that they do something and it's very successful because it's new, and then they try to recreate that over and over, and yeah. it plays it out and kills the product. Mm-hmm. Like the Master sets. Oh, <laughs> I, I was thinking of the Expeditions. But you're saying that you don't think that they should uh, necessarily do secret layers like, once a month. Yeah, no, I think that this is probably not what they're trying to do. I think it's not going to be once a month. I think that they just decided, oh, it would be kind of cool to do a, for the first 12 years, you know, do an, do one at the beginning of the year or whatever the Zodiac thing is. Yeah, I think maybe that. Uh, I also think probably Rats was high on their list of things to do a secret layer on. And then they're like, oh, and it's the year of the rat. We should do that. Yeah, so I'm hoping that they're not going to do one every month. Right. But this one does look cool. There's some cool cards in it. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they actually put duplicates of a card in it because they had already shown that they were not going to do that when people would definitely want duplicates of a card, but this time they did, so that's a good thing. They saw room for improvement and did it. And this one has more cards in it than I think any of the previous ones did. Did it? Because it's got five copies of Rat Colony, but, I mean, it's got... Eight total cards. So. Oh yeah, so I guess that puts it up one on the the previous sets. Yeah. I know some of the other sets only had three cards, so I just meant the right. other ones topped out at seven. So yeah. It puts it up one. Yeah, and, and I don't think that's significant. I'm just saying, like, you know, it's got eh, more cards in it. You got five copies of the Rat Colony, and then you also have a Maronar, a Pack Rat, and an Ink Eyes Servant of Oni. I thought if somebody commented me, it's like, yeah, the reason they only did five was because this way, if you got four copies of the thing, you'd have a playset of the first three and then 20 copies of Rat Colony. I might want more Rat Colony than that. I don't also, think I would ever play a deck with Rat Colony and it was less than 30 Rat Colony. Uh, you think? I think so. I'm not sure about that. I think they just felt like they needed to do multiple copies of Rat Colony and... Five seemed like a number. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it, they're not going to put 30 of them in, in the secret layer, right? And yeah. one or two, even three, like, I think they could have got away with three to five, right? It's probably what where they really want to be on it, and so... Yeah, I agree. I just thought that was a funny comment, though. Yeah, was like, it is. I mean, you know, 20 rat colonies does seem like a reasonable number if you built a rat colony deck. Uh, so, you know, if you if you want to have some special artwork on your rat colony deck, you can spend $160 on rat colonies. <laughs> but this Year of the Rat secret layer is going to be available on January 27th, starting at 9 a.m. January 27th Pacific time for 24 hours. So you have until the morning of the 28th to pick this up if you're interested in getting yourself some extra special rats. And the other thing going on in the news is I hear Andrzej Strasky is retiring again. This time he says he's retiring from streaming. 
And he's going to do that so he can focus more on playing for the MPL and he doesn't want to burn himself out on magic and stuff. And that all seems reasonable, but I'm wondering, Donovan, do you think this means we should expect him to win the next major online event? Yeah, I think the next Twitch rivals, they're probably going to invite him and win because <laughs> it's generally how he does things. But I also think this is interesting because a lot of the MPL players are encouraged to stream as part of being in the MPL. Right. And I think it the initial outset of it, it was a requirement. Is it not going to be anymore? Because I, I assumed that that just meant that he would be doing his MPL streaming as required and not other streaming. I think he'll be required to stream specific stuff, but I don't think he's required to like stream X number of hours every week outside of it, which okay. I think they were initially. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But that is interesting. And so I, I think that's interesting is that the person made the MPL where they encourage people to stream and he's going to stop streaming. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. I suspect that there will be pressure that you, you know, don't necessarily mean in a malicious way, but I suspect there will be pressure on him to stream more after he gets going in the NPL. Yeah, and I, I think it's he's probably going to continue streaming, but he just said he's going to, from what I looked at the thing, it looked like he said he was going to stop doing full-time streaming. Yeah. It was just meant like he'll probably stream special events. Oh yeah, but not. I, he did mention that he's, this doesn't mean he's never going to stream. He's not closing his Twitch account, he's just... Yeah, he's not going to be streaming regularly anymore. Yep. Yeah, so I, I thought that that was kind of amusing, is this, this guy yeah, keeps on sure retiring. Yeah, I'm sure he'll the next Twitch rival, so... <laughs> right. Well, also, here's the other thing. Yeah? Is he generally has his best success when retiring from stuff, and if he's <laughs> in the MPL, he's not allowed to just retire. So he had to find some way to retire to keep his winning record up. So he can win in the MPL. Exactly. So he, he's like, well, how do I... I got a loophole here on how to retire. So he's like, I'll retire from streaming. There we go. It's all a clever play by Andre Strauss. Boost yeah. his win rate. But uh, I think that was really all of the news this week about magic stuff. Do you want to let us know what we should be speculating on in our finance section, Donovan? Yeah, I think I have a good idea this time around. Step right up. Step right up. They're legal and standard. They're legal and modern. Get yours before they get banned. So, the big card coming up is going to be Sphinx Mindbreaker. No, um, <laughs> just kidding. Wait, wait. wait. <laughs> are, you, are you just kidding? I am just kidding. I think that that card is overpriced now. I placed an um, order. Yeah, and if you place an order for a dollar a piece, I think it's a great buy. <laughs> I think that card's worth like maybe five bucks, if that. All right, just to, to allay our audience's fears, because I know they're all worried about me. I haven't bought any Sphinx Mindbreakers. <laughs> what, what, what should we be looking at, Don? I think that every set, there's some kind of uncommon in it that is just flies under the radar for the first few weeks and then becomes two, three, four dollars. Sure. With Corset 2020, that was it's super obvious what we're talking about. It was like Aether Gust and Noxious Grass, Veil of Summer, stuff like that. Veil of Summer was two dollars on set release because people knew it was busted, and lo and behold, it's so busted it got banned. <laughs> of course. But Noxious Grass and Aether Gust are like two dollars a piece now, and they were less than a quarter when the set came out. Yeah. And so I think that every set has those uncommons that people just don't quite evaluate as being busted whenever they come out. Yeah, especially because there's like, it's an uncommon, who cares? Exactly. Over the set play, like, you're like, oh yeah, I need this uncommon. And just you find, eventually you figure out which uncommon is just really good and their rarity is uncommon. So like, there's plenty of them out there, but like, finding them is actually kind of difficult sometimes because people are like, 
oh yeah, I just have all my uncommons in a box at home. Right. I don't have those with me to trade. Or people will go like, oh, I'd, I could go get these uncommons out of my box that I opened, but it's not worth it for an uncommon. I'll just buy them from the store. And then mm-hmm. the store sells all of them they have and they don't have any. Anymore. Right. So I think what we're looking for this set, my bet on this one is going to be the demigod cycle. Yeah. Because I played with them in limited and I played the blue one, the white one, and the green one across my different limited events. And they were very, very good. Which is funny because the only ones coming up to it that I knew were 100% going to be good was the the white one I knew was going to have see some play, you know, but I didn't realize sure. how good it was going to be. What really I saw was that the red one and the black one were going to be very good cards. And I didn't even play with those ones in the limited event. And I thought the demigods were really good. Yeah, I was particularly impressed by the blue one in my event. Yeah, and looking at their prices, they're all around like a quarter right now. Oh, okay. Um, See, I would not have guessed that they'd be that low, actually. I wouldn't. Yeah. I didn't expect them to be very high. But... So the Constellation versions of them are kind of pricier, and those ones may not be necessarily a great spec. Right. And I could be wrong. It, the Constellation versions of the card being fancier could keep the price of the regular copies down. Okay. But just from my play with them, I think the Demigods are going to be very good in whatever color deck you're playing, you're going to want a Demigod. There may be decks that can't. Like, control decks may not want low-to-the-ground creatures, right? But, but if you're, I think if your control, though, it, once Theros comes out, blue-white is going to be the strong variation on control. And uh, Daxus, you may not want the blue one because it's more of an aggressive card, but Daxus as a control player, having a creature with a huge butt that gains you some life incidentally, that's a good card. Yeah, and so I like the black and the white one, are both two mana, and they have toughness on them. They get extra toughness. Right. And just playing with them, they just stonewalled attackers all day long. Oh, yeah. And then the blue, the red, and the green one cost a little bit more mana, but they have that power associated with them. Mm-hmm. And some stuff like the red one being pretty aggressively statted, and then you put an Embercleave on that thing. Embercleave gives you two devotion to red. That guy gives you two devotion to red, so if you put an Embercleave on it, he's already got five power. Sure. And so I think that that's going to be very powerful and a good interaction. Yeah. And then just all of them have good effects attached to them as well. So the white one gains you life when creatures enter the battlefield or die. The black one, you can pay two mana to exile two cards and you gain a life for each creature you exile. The blue one makes your opponent's spells that target your creatures cost one more to cast. The green one makes your creatures enter with an additional plus one plus one counter. And the red one says when your creatures die, you get one token or two one one tokens if it's a big creature. So it's just yeah. very good effects attached to these uncommons that also have very good stats as well. Yeah, I think considering what you said about the um, constellation versions of these cards existing and the fact that they are uncommons is you're not going to get a huge windfall by specking on these demigods. But if you want them, and you probably will, now would probably be a good time to buy them. You get a much better price for them right now. Exactly. I agree. And it's one of those things that a lot of times people just leave the commons and uncommons laying around. Don't leave those ones. Pick them up. Take them with you. Yeah. Because I think I think those cards are are the under the radar for this set. Cool. Oh, also, side note, mm-hmm. they're legendary, so people are going to want them as commanders. Oh, sure. Or uh, what's, the, what's the other version of Tiny commanders? leaders? All of them, mm-hmm. but Renata can be played in tiny leaders. I, I was thinking, um, is it called Brawl? Brawl, Brawl, yes. Yeah, that format that nobody plays. I mean, I said Tiny Leaders, which is played even less than Brawl. Is it? It's been around a lot longer. It's been dead a lot longer. (laughs) 
All right. Well, you want to take a break and hear a message from some of our contributors while we get prepared to come back and talk about the magic color pie? Yeah, I think this message is actually coming from our overlords at Engine Within. That's right. This one is uh, the Engine well, Within Some of our contributors, so I was just mentioning. Yeah. A parent does everything they can to protect their children. You bundle them up. You buckle them in. And you wash them off. But what can you do to prevent mind rot? Each year in Kaladesh, more than 200,000 people contract mind rot, and 36,000 die from complications related to the illness. So make sure you and your children get a vaccine today. The Giraper Department of Public Health has also created a top 10 list of things you can do to prevent mind rot. Get the complete list by visiting your local consulate office. This message brought to you by the Giraper Department of Public Health and by the Engine Within Network. You know what? I think that is an important message for all of our listeners. Donovan, have you had your mind rot vaccine? I mean, I think it's nice that we're trying to counteract all this uh, television now. Yeah, I, so I make sure to keep my children up to date on their vaccines, but I almost never get vaccinated, which I realize is... Uh, so the reason why adults should get vaccinated is to protect the children. Like, yep. you don't get a flu shot because you might get flu, oh no. Like, you know, you don't want to get flu, but the reason an adult should get a flu shot is so that the people they interact with who are elderly or who are very young and could die from the flu don't catch flu from them. Yeah. I recommend that, even though I don't live up to my own ideals, I do recommend that all of our listeners, you know, make sure that you're up to date on your mind rot vaccinations. We don't want that spreading. Seems like a good strategy. But what we're actually going to discuss today, aside from vaccines is the color pie in magic. And I know most of our listeners are probably familiar with what that is, but what we're doing is, as far as content for the show goes, I think that we're getting to a point where I'm pretty happy with it because we've got our episodes that we do when there's like something new and topical that we want to discuss, and we've got our episodes where we discuss the storyline from the various different sets. And we also have a recurring series where we talk about old articles about magic strategy and stuff. And I'm going to throw another one into the mix. We're going to start doing a recurring series about like color philosophy and just the, the variations in the mechanics and the personality, say, of each color of magic. And today we're going to kick that off by just talking about the concept in general. Like, you know, like what is the color pie? What is color philosophy? And why these are the things that actually make magic the best trading card game. There's a bunch out there, and some of them kind of use a similar system, but Magic is the first, well, Magic is actually the first trading card game, and for a while is the only one that utilized a system like this, and I think is very important to the game. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. You know Hearthstone better than I do, so I don't know exactly how it works, but I remember playing it a little bit, and one of my biggest problems with it was this mana system that worked by, like, every turn you get another one. And so you can play things that cost one more, but you can play anything. So it really streamlines every game into being very, very samey. Because everybody always has the same amount of mana every turn. Not every turn of the game, but you know, on turn two, you always have two mana. And with two mana, you can play any card that costs two. 
Yeah. Um, Hearthstone, if we wanted to get into it, does have some similar stuff going on. Just instead of a color pie that you put into that kind of stuff, it's got uh, cards that are specific to each class. Oh, right. You have a character that you're playing as, and that character can only play certain cards sometimes, right? Yeah. But I suppose a lot of that gets more toward the mana system generally than the color pie itself, and so yeah, maybe and a bad example. Saying, but... <laughs> I think that Hearthstone does have a color pie thing going on. It's just with the larger pool of colorless cards, basically, it, mm-hmm. it is less obvious than in Magic. Okay. Donovan, do you, do you mind telling me what the color pie is, as far as your understanding? The color pie is the different types of effects that they create are associated with a different color. Mm-hmm. And so the color pie would be a way to break down which effects go in which color. And using that, you can have cards that are multicolored, getting to have shared effects. Like, you don't want to put burn spells in green. Right. They would never do that. Like, wh- why? Why don't you want to have burn spells in green? Why doesn't Watsi want you to have burn spells in green? Because they want there to be a reason to play different colors. Mm. And if you make all of the colors have this access to the same effects, then it's purely an aesthetic choice to make a color. Right. It's not anything to do with what kind of strategy you're playing. Mm-hmm. They can make all the colors have an effect, maybe, but one color is going to do it better than the others. Sure. Like, creatures. All of the colors have creatures, but blue's kind of shit at it. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, white has little tiny creatures that kind of build on each other, and red has fast creatures, and green has just big creatures, and black has cursive creatures. Sure. Yeah, and I I think that uh, having different effects in different colors essentially just creates restrictions, right? And... Restrictions breed creativity. That's true. Also, restrictions are kind of necessary for a strategy game, right? And and like at its heart, that's kind of what magic is. You know, it's a strategy game. And and there are some various different ways magic introduces restrictions. Like there's the mana system, like like I mentioned when we, when I was complaining about Hearthstone a moment ago, is you have to have enough mana to play spells, right? You also have to have the right mana to play spells. So it's not only do you have enough lands in your deck, but which kind of lands do you have? You know, which ones did you play? Yeah. And that kind of restriction creates decision points. That, that's what... The sentence where I interrupted myself, <laughs> the sentence I was making is, having restrictions creates decision points. And that's what's interesting in a strategy game, is all of the decision points. Yes. It's not necessarily true that more decision points is better, because you can get to a point where you're having to make so many decisions that it becomes fatiguing or just uninteresting, depending on the quality of the decisions. But you have to have systems in place so that people can make different decisions from one another in order to have a strategy game. And one of the really big ones in Magic is what colors are you playing? What colors are you going to put in your deck? Yeah, that's the decision point I'm stuck on for my modern saga. <laughs> I was all set to play black white and then they so I played black green and it was pretty cool but I wasn't really playing green for any of the sagas I was just playing green for like good re- removal cards because a lot of the better re- cards in modern are black green yeah and so I was pretty much playing black green to play assassin's trophy and the breath decay and maelstrom pulse right but then they printed some good cards in white that go along with this strategy like hall of heliod's generosity so I was like, oh, we'll play black-white. Then I'll get to play some, maybe some white sagas. Uh, didn't really particularly want to play any of those. So it's still just the black sagas. And then Theros Beyond Death came out, and I got good white and good green sagas. I'm just like, oh no, now I have to actually decide things. 
Well, this is all a pretty good example. That's good examples of decision points, not color pie. Sure. Then the color pie, in addition to creating decision points and contributing to having strategy in this strategy game, the color pie does a couple other things. Like it creates a a sense of flavor and personality for each of the colors. Because the idea of having a red spell that shoots a fireball and deals three damage to your opponent, all of that comes from the flavor, which is important to having a fun game. It makes it a lot more fun. And so yeah. the uh, the color pie helps achieve that as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that it seems to me from card design looking at stuff that maybe Richard Garfield didn't really quite understand that consciously when creating the game at the beginning Mm -hmm. but did kind of understand that so like he made those things and like some of the stuff kind of stepped out of it because he didn't have it in the forefront of his brain when doing this stuff but a lot of it is represented there and it was a good basis what was going forward sure and so i think that's one of the reasons the game was so successful yeah i think whether he was thinking about it consciously or not he definitely was influenced by flavor in making decisions about the color pie in the beginning because like you know the first zombies are all in black right um yeah it's black magic you know yeah like and the life gain is white or is there some in green in like alpha beta yeah then stream of life in alpha yeah i think so but it's like the gaining life is all in white and green so i think he definitely had the kind of idea of like life and nature and stuff were very much white and green concepts uh, like death and darkness and stuff was black and, and i think that's pretty those are kind of obvious once you've gotten yourself set on the idea of having colored mana yeah but it's the kind of thing is like but he's the one that thought of having the colored mana in the game yeah that's one of the things that was unique about magic do you want to like go over some of the color pie in the like what each color does flavorfully and mechanically yeah give some examples of mechanics and have a quick touch on the personality of each of the colors sounds like a good idea to me we're playing magic so we got to do what All right. We save the best for last that way, too. Sure. Oh, actually, before we do that, sorry. Another concept that's probably going to be useful to understand as we do this series, maybe helpful some this episode, it would probably be more applicable when we get deeper into each color, but something that contributes to how the mechanics interact with the color pie is the fact that, you know, there's different abilities in different colors, right? But some abilities are in multiple colors, and some of them are in every color, but some of them aren't. Some of them are in multiple colors, but not all the colors. And like you said, some colors do things better than others. So some terminology that might be useful to have is, in Magic, some mechanics are primary in a certain color. That means this mechanic doesn't only show up in this color, but this is the color that does this the most. And then similarly, they can be secondary or tertiary in the color. So say, as an example of this artifact destruction right as a mechanic because being able to destroy artifacts is primary in red and green red and green both do this a lot and then secondary in white white does this sometimes and then black and blue don't get to do this yep that sounds accurate or say like animating lands a land becomes a creature until end of turn that's primary in green green does this that's normal for green it's secondary in red means sometimes red can do it, but not very much. And it's tertiary in white, black, and blue. Like just the other colors can do this. They're allowed to, but they don't typically. Yeah. Cool. Well, you want to start off with some examples of white, Donovan? Yeah. So I think I would like to start from 
Kind of like one of the things I really like about the color pie is the flavorful like D&D alignments thing. Sure. And I think that white and on like helping me rep- understand why a card fits in the white color pie goes along with this mm-hmm. is that white is kind of like a lawful good color. Right. And so will white create rules and restrictions on how to play the game or to have small groups of things work together toward a bigger purpose mm-hmm. and then just things that generally seem helpful or good or team player type thing and so you get a lot of stuff like life gain or creatures that say all creatures get this benefit yeah you get some stuff like taxing effects that say like these spells cost one more mm-hmm. because you're doing that to set restrictions on like what is and isn't allowed to be done right and white really implements the law part of the lawful good alignment (laughs) exactly and then stuff like life gain healing and small things like your creatures get plus one plus one is like a like the kind of magic of like supporting people and helping them to grow you know sure so that leads to decks that are going to be like white weenie decks where they have a bunch of small little creatures where each individual creature is not very powerful but as a they are mm-hmm. so you get stuff like Thalia Guardian of Thraven, a 2 1 first striker that says non creature spells cost one more to cast, right? Or Lean and Arbiter is a 2 2 that says that players can't search libraries, so they pay two mana, yeah, laying down the law or setting yeah. rules. So they're these little creatures that don't do all that much on their own, but if you get them together, they start making it so that your opponent can't do crazy broken things that they're trying to do. They have some kind of thing that bends or changes the rules from what you normally would do in Magic, and you're like, no, you don't get to do that. You're playing by the rules. You're playing Magic the way you're supposed to. Sure. You're paying mana for your spell. You are drawing your card for a turn. You are not picking a card out of your deck. Right. You get stuff like that. Um, what, what do you want to say on white? What do you think? If you don't mind, I'll just throw out a couple of the mechanics that are primary in white. Like, see, white gets to exile creatures or permanents until whatever card leaves play. White gets to destroy attacking or blocking creatures. White also gets to destroy all creatures. And also white gets things like double strike, first strike, and flying all appear primary in white. I think double strike is also primary in red, so it's not necessarily just a white thing. Yeah, primary does not mean that is in this mechanic more than every other color, just that Mm. there are not other colors that do it more. Yeah. White also gets protection from X, mm-hmm. protection from colors, protection from creatures, whatever. White gets protection more than anyone else does. I think what you were talking about with the Thalia or Leonin Arbiter both fall into the category of rule setting. Just cards that say, this is true now. Laying down the law. Yeah. And uh, token generation. And then there's a lot more. Like, I didn't go over everything. I just, uh, I have a list here that is literally all of the primary white mechanics. I just uh, mentioned some that jumped out to me. Some of the ones that jump out as you see more often are representative of the color pie to you. Yeah. Like, technically, Tutor for a Planeswalker is a white primary mechanic, but (laughs) that isn't something I felt like I needed to mention. Until you did. Well, moving on. Sure. We'll move on to blue, and I think... You mentioned the D&D alignments, and so in D&D, you know, there's like chaotic, lawful, and neutral, like chaotic good, and lawful good, and neutral good, and so on and so forth. So I suppose, I haven't played very much D&D, but I assume that means there is like a neutral good, neutral evil, and like a neutral neutral? Yeah, uh, I think that one's generally called true neutral. True neutral? Okay. Well, as a blue essentially is true neutral. I think as... As magic goes, the five different colors pretty well represent 
the the lawful and chaotic of both good and evil. And then there is blue representing just neutral. Yeah. And what blue wants is to just be perfect like in oneself. Like you are going to be the best you you can be. <laughs> blue cares about being the smartest or I, I guess really that's how blue views prediction more than anything else. Blue wants to have all of the options and answers and be the most intelligent and in the most control. And it's not necessarily the most powerful, but it doesn't seem to value that. It thinks of itself as the best and wants to achieve perfection. Yeah, blue values doing the best it can consistently rather than having the highest variance in power level. Right. Blue views everything as a blank slate, right? As a tool to be used. And whether that's its creatures or its spells, everything is a tool that can be made into a powerful tool depending on how it's used. And everything has options. I, I think blue is a lot more of a ephemeral thing, which is why it's not strong in creatures. Yeah, it's got good instants and sorceries a lot of times. Got yeah. card selection and deck manipulation. Yeah, blue is pretty... Mm, black does almost anything to some degree, right? But aside from the fact that that's true of black, blue is the only color that really interacts with the library or the stack. And that's where a lot of people think of blue as being stronger inherently than other colors. Uh, and I joke about that. I think I have on this show joked about blue being the best. But really, if you read the internet and people discussing the colors of magic, blue comes up very often as being the most powerful color. And there have been times in magic when that may have been true. But I think that basically comes down to the idea that blue is the only one that's really interacting with the library and the stack. So if that's something that you value, then blue is far and away better at it than anyone else. And blue does a good job of taking whatever you're doing with another color you're playing and amplifying that. Yeah, but blue has counter spells and draw spells and deck manipulation in general, such as scrying, yeah. looking at top five, stuff like sure. that. Also, it can return permanence to its owner's hands or top of their library, bottom of their library, maybe, mm -hmm. but doesn't actually usually destroy things. Right. Yeah, blue has a lot of trouble destroying any kind of permanent, uh, but blue is a lot better at dealing with instants and sorceries than any of the other colors. Some of the mechanics that are primary in blue, and we mentioned some like drawing cards and counter spells, also color changing. Blue can change other things' colors. Uh, flash, being able to play non-instant spells at instant speed. Flying, manipulating turns, like taking extra turns. Yeah. Manipulating artifacts. And tapping and untapping things. Actually, I think white might be... White is really good at tapping things. Blue yeah. is really good at untapping things. It also taps them very well, too. I was just saying Yeah. that blue taps and untaps them. White mostly just taps them. Sure. I think blue interacts with permanence generally, probably more than most of the other colors do. Yeah, whereas the other colors are more likely to interact very well with a specific type of... Right. But blue does have a lot less of those specific things, like creatures or enchantments, or anything but artifacts. Blue interacts with artifacts more than anyone else does. But yeah. Blue strong suits are in artifacts, instants, and sorceries, and its flavor is more the cerebral... Knowledge and temporal magic. Yeah. Well, that leads us on to black, mm -hmm. which is the 
lawful evil side of the alignments. Right. And Black does a lot of stuff with ritualistic and dark magic and black magic kind of stuff. Yeah, which I want to point out while while we're on the topic especially when we're characterizing it as chaotic evil is in ma- in magic black isn't necessarily evil it's more like it's just self-centered right it's focused yeah. on personal power more than empowering the community exactly which is where the difference lies between like black and white magic is white magic mm-hmm. is about sacrificing yourself for the good of others whereas black is about sacrificing anything for the good of yourself right and so Black magic is going to have a lot of stuff like paying life to get a more powerful effect. Right. Or sacrificing a creature in order to do something else better. Mm-hmm. It's got a one mana sorcery that destroys target creature, but you also have to sacrifice a creature to do that. Sure. Whereas normally destroying any creature is going to cost about three mana. So some of the effects that you get in black is going to be just killing creatures because mm-hmm. a black mage doesn't mind just killing a creature. They're like, nope, this is the best route to power. So we'll just kill that guy. Right. Hand disruption, reanimation effects, tutoring out a very specific card is generally a black effect. Yeah. Blue is good at getting good cards over time. Black is good at getting one good card now. This is kind of like where I mentioned in when I was talking about blue that, well, black can kind of do anything really is because black's philosophy is that it is willing to pay whatever it takes to do the thing at once. So if you are willing to pay whatever price it is that's associated with it, you can do anything in black. It's going to have an additional cost associated with it, maybe, than it would if you did that in the appropriate color. But black can probably do it. Exactly. There's a a couple of things black can't really do, Mm -hmm. which is destroy artifacts and enchantment. Right. And and I think in this specific instance, this is more a example of the color pie is supporting balance in the game more than flavor. Because I don't think there's any real flavor reason why black mages can't deal with enchantments. But this is another way the color pie is useful. You can say, hey, black has all of these abilities that aren't available elsewhere or are more powerful than these other abilities. So what is something that black can't do so that you still have to make a decision and it's not just everyone so well, we play black because it's better. So it has things that it can't do as well. Yeah. Mention some of the things from my list of mechanics here. Some of Black's primary mechanics are like can't block, creatures that just can't block, being able to manipulate the graveyard, cast spells out of the graveyard, exile things from the graveyard, get things from the graveyard to the hand. You mentioned destroying creatures, death touch, discard spells, sacrifice effects, and you mentioned tutor effects where you just get to go and look for any card that you want. All of those things are primary in Black. But I guess uh, red is the next color. Yep. And Red, on our D&D scale, is chaotic evil. Red isn't necessarily trying to be evil or promote itself over all of the things. Red just is passionate. That's really the thing, in my opinion. Red is very passionate. Red cares a lot about the things Red cares about and is willing to hurt people that it doesn't care about in order to get the things that it wants. Whether that's to protect someone or just, you know, selfishly get something. Whatever it is that Red wants, Red is willing to lash out to do that. And Red wants to be free from any form of control. So that's where Red butts up against white, like you mentioned, or blue, is that it doesn't want any restrictions on what it can do and what it's allowed to do. Red just wants to go pedal to the metal at all times. Yeah, which is why red tends towards those aggressive strategies is because it's about getting there quickly and doing it now, not about... Like, we talked about blue wanting to have the most powerful, consistent game plan. Mm -hmm. 
red is a lot more likely to have that really high power variance between games. Right. Because it wants as much power as possible, but sometimes the best way to get the most power in a game is to have cards that sometimes are not as powerful. Mm -hmm. And so you get those situations where it's like, yeah, I had all the powerful cards in my deck, but sadly I drew all lands because I didn't have any way to get the right cards at the right time. Yeah, and Red red is, is a lot more interested in, like, spontaneity and, like, do, do it now and, like, no regrets. As we have care about instants, like, we do our things whenever we want to, and Red has these effects that, like, exile cards from your library and you can play them, but if you don't, they're just gone now because Red is willing to, to do everything now now i want it now and so as haste and first strike it does the damage first yeah first strike it's like, oh we're doing damage now i'm doing damage now right one thing that is ubiquitous to red is burn spells oh yeah definitely <laughs> i didn't even mention it there are a couple representations of burn spells in other colors but like white can do damage to attacking and blocking creatures mm-hmm. and black can make players lose life and green yep. has hornet sting sure but the burn spells are generally in red yeah because red's just like just throw some mana at them i have mana do mana at them make that hurt i will use this mana to cause you pain right because that is the goal yeah that is just the most direct and instantaneous way to turn my mana into your loss just exactly punch you with it uh, but as from a flavor perspective, because this is true also in the color, but we didn't mention it with the other colors, but like white flavorfully gets like life stuff, you know, and blue gets like water and air magic and black gets death and dead things magic. Right. And red gets fire magic. Fire and lightning. My yeah. Fire and lightning. Right. And and between that concept that I was just expressing, which isn't a really a based on that fire and lightning flavor, but that fact I'm just going to hurl my mana at you to make you hurt, and the fact that red is the fire and lightning color, it just works really well together. So you get a lot of, like, flame torches and lightning bolts and fireballs. Yeah, those sorts of things are probably associated with red more than anything else is. (laughs) But some of the mechanics that are primary in red are artifact destruction. Red gets to destroy artifacts as much as green does. Red gets to copy things temporarily. Uh, Blue gets to copy things permanently. Just make a copy. Red gets to make a copy for now, and then it will lose it either at the end of turn or... It'll revert back to being not... Right. Red gets, like, use that direct damage. It uh, is double strike, like you mentioned in white. Double strike and first strike, red gets to do as much as white does. Red gets haste. Red gets has to attack each turn. Whereas black is the one that says can't block. Red can, except that it has to attack because it has no impulse control. Exactly. Red gets land destruction. And red gets, like, threaten effects, like where you get to steal something temporarily. Again, blue can permanently steal things at a high cost. Red can fairly cheaply take something for now, but they have to give it back. And that's an interesting correlation between the colors that shows up quite often, Mm -hmm. is blue and red, although typically have very different styles of play, and the players playing them are generally don't overlap that much. Right, and and very different flavor. They do actually do a lot of the same thing, Yeah, just in completely different ways. They both copy things, blue copies things permanently, red copies them now. Mm -hmm. They both have a lot of instants and sorceries, whereas blue is interacting with instances and red is interacting with face. Yeah, I think it's kind of like red can do a lot of these things faster and cheaper, but with less long-term value. 
Exactly. Again, because of its its desire to do everything right now, you know. Yep. I think that pretty well covers red. Um, I think that's all the colors, though. That's that leaves us the, the, the four, most the important four colors. Of the most magic. important color of magic, green, which is the chaotic good mm-hmm. color of magic, and the reason it's really representative of that is they're they are trying to create growth and life, but not necessarily without hurting other people. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not doing anything like black where they pay life or sacrifice creatures. It's not necessarily meant to be, like, peaceful and calm, either. But it's going to be like, oh, I'm going to create a big a big monster by making my creature gigantic, you know? Or yeah. I'm going to play really big creatures, or I'm going to ramp up my mana and get more lands to play big, cool creatures. Yeah, green is kind of the more is better color. You know how you make a better creature? Give it more power. You know how you make a better mana base? Have more lands. Mm-hmm. And green has, has a lot of flexibility, too, when it comes to stuff like that. Like, green is the one that can help you get different colors if you want something other than green for some reason. Green is the best at getting you would. those colors if you're not in those colors. Yeah, it's got creatures that produce mana, and so therefore they sometimes produce other colors of mana. And mm-hmm. it's got cards that search for land, so if you get to pick which land you're getting. Yep. And the reason it's thought of as more like on the good side of magic is generally the way the green magic works is it's creation and augmentation, not necessarily... Like destruction. That's kind of like how black will destroy things. Outright kill your creatures, destroy your permanence, make you lose life. And red will just destroy things. Uh, Like destroy your artifacts, kill your creatures, deal you damage... Like, green can hurt your opponent, but that all comes in with how you utilize it. That's you using your creatures. Green just is making stuff. Just making stuff. Not destroying things. Just making creatures. Just making mana. Exactly. Well, the only permanent type that green actually gets to destroy are artifacts, right? Enchantments. And enchantments. Yeah, artifacts and enchantments. The ones that black can't. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, because it's just like green generally is about protecting the creatures and not about the other types of permanence, I guess, sometimes. Right. Green very rarely gets to just outright kill creatures. Yeah. And when it does, they're pretty much always flying. Yeah, it, it <laughs> for some reason, it's like it's about protecting creatures as long as they're not flying creatures. I think that, again, comes down to a rules and balance issue more than the flavor, because that, I think, has to do with the fact that since green doesn't get flying, or it doesn't get flying anywhere near as much as the other colors do, yeah. in order to protect itself from flying, it gets reach, which is just, you know, this non-flying creature can block flying creatures, and about once per set, there is a card that can kill a flying creature in green. So some of the mechanics green gets more than anyone else. It gets artifact destruction. This is shares with red. Green gets the this can't be countered. Fight is a mechanic that is almost exclusive to green. I think it comes up in red and black too. But that's where your creature deals damage to their creature. Their creature deals damage to your creature. Fog effects are primary in green. There's no damage this turn putting extra permanence onto the battlefield. It does this most with lands, but it can also do creatures, reach, trample, and token generation. I think it shares token generation with white. Yeah. And untapping lands. Those are all green primary mechanics. Yeah. Something that I think we actually might want to mention for each color that 
I think is kind of interesting for representing what each color is doing yeah. is how each color buffs creatures. Yeah, because they all do interact with their own creatures, right? They so. can all interact with the power and toughness of creatures in different ways, and they just each mm-hmm. one does it differently. Right. White is going to do either really wide buffs, as in all the creatures, or buff toughness, usually. Yep. They'll frequently get one and X. It'll be one power and some amount of toughness. Or zero power and some amount of toughness. Or or two and one. That's another one that white get a lot, right? Is plus two, plus one. Yep, but then blue generally sticks to either just toughness or power toughness switching. Right. And so if it's going to boost the power, generally it has to boost the toughness and then swap the power and toughness around. Right. Black generally does plus X minus X. They get power at the cost of toughness. Mm -hmm. And so black gets some of the more powerful power boosting effects, but sometimes it makes the creature lose some toughness, in which case... The creature has to be strong enough to handle it. Those things can kind of work as removal spells, or just kind of as representation of this. Oh, you know what? I should say this in blue, too. In this stream, blue sometimes reduces the power of the opposing creature instead of buffing the creatures, your creatures. Yeah. Black also does some shrinking the opposing creatures rather than buffing your own. Right. And then red does mostly power boosting. Mm -hmm. It does a lot of plus X plus O's plus X plus one effects. Right. Then green does general just power boosting. Yep. Hey, plus, plus, X, plus, 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 yeah, it's, it's generally not always, but generally pretty even on its power boost, power toughness boosting. Right. And for higher numbers generally than the other yeah, colors. It, it, it's more efficient at it kind of like the, the one mana spell in green will give it like plus three, plus three, whereas the one mana spell in red might give it plus three, plus oh, or the one mana spell in white would give it plus two, plus one. Whereas in black might give it plus three, minus one. Yeah. And blue might give plus zero, plus seven. You know, like, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that pretty well covers things. I mean, I, there, there's tons of stuff that we didn't go into, or that we forgot, or that we left out, or that we'll cover when we get to the episode specifically about that color. But I think this will be a, a pretty good uh, general idea of how each of these colors is distinct from each other. And then on, on this subject, you know, don't get mad at me if we don't end up doing this because we, you know, we don't have everything laid out yet. But our plan is for this series is we're not necessarily going to do like the next five episodes about these colors. But when we do do these episodes, we'll see if we can have a guest on to talk to us about the colors specifically and get their perspective on these as well and that may be interesting uh, so mm-hmm. look forward to that we'll see can i be the guest star for green yeah i kind of figured for green you you would be our like guest expert on green <laughs> and we just need to find someone else to co-host for an episode with me <laughs> but also if you're a listener and you would like to participate in this i can't promise you that you will get to because we do have a couple of other people we have in mind to do colors here so if we've already given the color to someone else then we already have some colored people in mind right uh but if you would be interested in being a guest to talk about a particular color you should let us know and see if we can make that work well speaking of colors i think we have a interesting judge call about colors don't we yeah judge i think it's uh we planned this well yeah definitely planned 100 percent so we've been doing some of these judge calls about layers and the way they work. Yeah. And this is one that 
is not about layers, but it kind of feels similar to the way some of those other judge calls we've done feel. Okay. I was going to go over the interaction between Devoid and Painter Servant. Mm -hmm. Because Painter Servant says, as it comes into play, you choose a color. Then cards in all zones are the chosen color in addition to whatever other colors they would be. Right. Which means that you like pick blue and then all the cards in your deck are blue. So if you have a set card that says go search your deck for a blue card, you can go get that. It winds up frequently being comboed with like grindstone that says target player mills to. And if those cards share a color, repeat this process to just put their whole deck into the graveyard. Yeah. But an interesting interaction is when you bring up painter servant and devoid card because devoid says this card is colorless in all zones. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the way this is going to work is you're going to take into account the timestamp on the card, which is not a thing you can see. You can't look down at the card and be like, ah, where's the timestamp? Yeah. Where is the time stamped on this card, Judge? Yeah, no, it's just when that effect started going into effect. Painter Servant doesn't do anything unless it's on the battlefield, whereas Devoid affects things in all zones. Right. So Devoid effect started at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. And Painter Servant starts when it enters the battlefield. So the more recent one takes effect. Okay. And so in general, once Painter Servant comes into play, the Devoid cards are just whatever color Painter Servant said. Because Devoid robs them of all other colors and then Painter Servant makes them this color right right except for whenever a devoid card enters the battlefield okay so if a card with the void enters the battlefield it's treated as a new instance of this object than when it was on the stack or in your hand right, so now its effect is is happening now instead of at the beginning of the game yeah and so you reset basically you're resetting the timestamp on its devoid to now and so okay. the things that come into play after painter servant that have devoid are just colorless okay which is good to keep in mind because things like Pyroblast or Hydroblast are frequently played with the Painter Servant that to say destroy target permanent if it's blue or destroy target permanent if it's red. Right. And so if you have a Devoid creature in play, if it came into play after the Painter Servant, they can't Pyroblast. Okay. I think this this is a, a good one to follow up on our others because like you said, this isn't, this isn't about layers, this is about timestamps. I think in our first judge call, we talked about like the importance of layers. Because if you didn't have layers, then like everything would rely on timestamps, right? And this one can get confusing because the timestamps are what's important. Yeah. So if you have a Devoid creature in play when Painter Servant comes into play, that one is just whatever color Painter Servant says. Right. Whereas if you have the same creature in play after Painter Servant, it's colorless. Yeah, I think this is an example of why the layer system is useful. Because like, in this case... These cards are do it, interacting on the same layers, right. not any way to separate the... Like, they're doing the same thing, adding and removing colors. Right, so this so is happening at the really same point in the them. layers. Right, so so because the layers don't affect this, it's timestamps, and it is more confusing than layers. Exactly, right? which is why the layer system is good, is so that you can know which effect takes precedent. Right. And these effects, neither one takes precedent. They're just, just which order they started being applied. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. Also, a devoid spell being put on the stack would also be colorless because now it's being put on the stack, not in your hand. Okay. So that's another thing to keep in mind. But they can use devoid cards to cast Force of Will because Force of Will says exile a blue card from your hand. And while it's in your hand, it's still blue. Right. But whenever cards change zones, like going from hand to the stack, they are treated as new instances of the object, therefore the Doid effect starts taking place again. Okay. As Painter Servant affects things that are everywhere? Yes. All cards that aren't on the battlefield and spells and permanents are the chosen color in addition to their other colors. And so that says cards aren't on the battlefield, but then it also says permanents, which is going to be all the cards that are on the battlefield. Right. But does that mean... If a Devoid card is in your library and you draw it, it changes zones, right? Yes. So does that reset the timestamp? There are two hidden zones, and so there's no way to show... Okay. There's no way you can prove that that card wasn't in your hand the whole time. 
Okay, so it doesn't reset the timestamp because the... correct, basically because timestamps are public information, and the right. changing of that card's zone was not public information. Right. Okay. I just thought it was an interesting thing because there's some cool stuff like playing Painter Servant and then minusing your Ugin to exile all permanents that cost less than X was going to hit lands and stuff. Yeah. But like a Devoid card on the battlefield that came out after Painter Servant, stick around. Sure. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's, that's a cool interaction. Usually after Donovan gets back from the judge call, before we go, we like to do some listener feedback. And this episode, we didn't have any when we started recording, but I actually got a message while we were recording. But it looks like JJ got his package with the Kaleidoscope Killers, and he said he's excited to put this stuff into his collection, and the Planeswalker that he got was a Soren. Oh, cool. Do you know which Soren was in the... Uh, I was going to say I have no idea, but... Oh, wait, they were the War of the Spark Planeswalkers, right? So it's going to be Soren, Vengeful Bloodlord? Cool. Then you got a Stained Glass Soren and the Kaleidoscope Killers collection, which is the Sliver Overlord, the Ur-Dragon... And Reaper King. Everyone's favorite, Scarecrow. So that was pretty cool. He also asked if the guy who won before got the arena code already, because we mentioned that he wanted the code, and that's negative. I didn't give him the code because that was part of our prize, and so I was just going to send him the whole thing. But but then they wouldn't give us an address. Yeah, and, and they actually have messaged me back since then to, to give them their due, and they said they were sorry that they missed my other messages. They didn't. They just didn't notice that they had direct messages on Twitter, and they are not interested in having paper magic cards. So I said, oh, that's cool. Thanks for letting me know. And, you know, that code should still be valid for JJ. But I'm, I'm glad that JJ was excited to get that stuff. Um, I, was, I, I had fun giving that away. Hopefully sometime in the future we'll be able to do some more giveaways. So, you know, people uh, just pay attention to our Twitter and listen to our episodes. And we'll, we'll let you know when we're, when we're giving away something else. Don, do you have anything else that you wanted to to address or tell our listeners before we go? No. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Donovan. And thanks to all the listeners who come and listen to us every week. Next week, we'll be back doing it again. In the meantime, Donovan, if anybody wants to find you and tell you what their favorite color of magic is, where, where can they track you down? I'm at Boardwalk Games in North Dallas most days most of the time <laughs> and uh you can also message me on twitter with one of them uh direct messagerino thingies at day underscore donovan and if anybody's looking to get in touch with me or wants to keep an eye out for any future giveaways you can find me at engine within on twitter or you can catch me on our video game podcast its current title is the list all the games eventually. If you're looking for it on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or wherever you get this podcast, uh, but we're looking at doing a rebrand on that. So either look it up now and subscribe or, you know, check back later to find out what the new title is. But if you want to find that show or more from this show, you can find all of our stuff that we do at enginewithin.com and you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash enginewithin or checking out our Tee Public store by visiting our website and going to the store page. Donovan, what do you say? Pasta pasta. Oh, wait, no. Later days. Yeah, uh, later lasagna. Oh, wait, you threw me off. Uh, <laughs> pasta lasagna. Don't get any on you.
Yeah, I know, but I was just joking. <laughs> Sometimes jokes don't actually work. Sure. Sometimes they don't land either, because your brother is stupid. <laughs> Worthless commander cards? They are root now. I mean, I don't care. It's like syncopates and negates and like dirty counter spells that I don't hey, really play with. Ah, ah, what? You damage counter spells? Yeah, I am curious what happened to them.